This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast done in partnership with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. It's one of the strange artifacts of history that Zanzibar, the island off the coast of Tanzania, was once controlled by the Sultanate of Oman. In 1832, then-Sultan Said Said bin Sultan al-Boy Saidi made the island his capital, with the empire later split in two upon his death, one based in Muscat, one based in Zanzibar. As Sima Alavi notes in her history, Sovereigns of the Sea, Omani Ambition in the Age of Empire, the Omani descended their reach across the Indian Ocean, preserving their autonomy in the Age of European Empire, particularly, and perhaps awkwardly, regarding the slave trade. Sima Alavi is a professor of history at Ashoka University in Sonipat, Haryana. In 2010, she was at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard as the William Bentink Smith Fellow. She has written books on the military, medical, and military of India, including Muslim cosmopolitanism in the Age of Empire from Harvard University Press. Today, Sima and I talk about Zanzibar, the slave trade, and what the Omani Sultanate tells us about the international system in the Age of Empire. So, Seema, thank you so much for coming on the show today to talk about the Omani Empire. And my first question really is, kind of how large a territory are we talking about when we're talking about the, you know, the quote-unquote Omani Empire? Um, there's Oman, there's Zanzibar. Where else are we are we talking about? Yes, I mean, thank you for having me. And um, this is one of the first interviews for my book, so I'm very excited, and I hope. Uh, your audience and all of us benefit from this. So to answer your question, um, actually, I call it the Sultanate and not the empire, because somewhere in my mind, uh, I have a geographical expanse for an empire, um, which uh, I think uh, the Oma, in the Omani uh, case, it doesn't quite fit into that expanse geographically. Um, and uh, But at its peak period in the 19th century, um, it was pretty expansive, you know, territorially. So um, it had almost, you know, um, the southeast corner of the Arabian Peninsula, right up to the Strait of Hormuz, then to Iran, Persia, Bandarabas, Kishim, some of these important ports in the Persian Gulf. And then, of course, a very long coast on the Swahili coast on East Africa, uh, starting from, say, where Kenya is today to where Mozambique is today, right? So it's a pretty long East African coast. So, uh, I mean, in terms of geography and territory, it was pretty expansive. Uh, also uh, interesting and uh, kind of exceptional, I would say, which is why I got attracted to it because it covered a kind of, you know, African continent, it covered uh, the Arabian, uh, you know, polities, it covered the Iranian coast, you know, so it was in its Afro-Arab 
Persian profile, it was pretty exceptional, right? So that's why that was one of the reasons why I got excited about it because, as you probably know, I'm a historian of South Asia, and um, I don't, uh, you know, normally would not get attracted to doing a whole book on Oman. But it's this exceptional geographical character of the Sultanate uh, interested me. Um, and in terms of connections, of course, Bombay and India were very much part of the geographical imaginary of the Sultanate. So if you move from beyond the physical expanse of the empire to a kind of more embracive imaginary of the Sultanate, then I would say that uh, you know, uh, west, the western coast of India, Kutch, Bombay, they were also very much within the, uh, you know, uh, political ambit uh, of the Sultanate. So in that sense, it was um, pretty expansive, pretty exceptional, and uh, and I I thought uh, worthy of you know a little mm. more in- investigation. And I mean, I I know your book I think doesn't talk about this part of the Omani Sultanate that much. Um, but the idea that 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 Gwadar, in my other life, I write a lot about China economics, and obviously Gwadar is a name that pops up a lot. With And the idea that that was Omani until until quite recently, actually, is also something I never, um, I never realized. Yes, yes, hmm. that's true. And I mean, there was so much of, um, you know, uh, hop in, hop off, uh, as it were, uh, you know, geographically of this empire. So, for, uh, you know, Baluchistan, which is today in Pakistan, at different points of time, was very much within their ambit. Uh, so many ports, Wadur, Keshem, Bandarabas, uh, were on lease uh, to the Omani Sultan- Sultans. Um, and uh, so it was, I mean, it was, not only was it exciting for me because it was Afro-Arab-Persian, uh, in its profile, but it was also exciting to me because of the waxing and waning of its geographical territories and the ideas of political sovereignty, uh, you know, invoking, drawing, deriving from so many of these waxing, waning, uh, you know, geographical bits that were off and on added, deleted, you know, in its long, in the long history of the empire. So it was pretty unusual. And I was quite surprised that in the larger um, kind of frame and gamut of global and world history, even Indian Ocean history, uh, nobody had kind of, you know, paused uh, to think uh, of its exceptionality and what could that mean in our writing of world and global histories. Well, let's let's talk about that a bit. I mean, you've already you've already kind of mentioned this in your previous answers, especially in your in your. Um, wish to call it the Omani Sultanate and not the Omani Empire, because Empire brings a lot of description and and baggage with it. Um, but so, what is it about the Omani Sultanate that makes it important when we talk about the international system of the time? You know, how does it challenge the way we understand things like like sovereignty, like imperialism? What what do we miss when we don't look at the Omani Sultanate? Yeah, that's a lovely question. Thank you. Well, I think when I was uh, doing the archival research for this book, uh, one of the received wisdoms as you know that I had as a student and a kind of interested scholar of the Indian Ocean world was that imperialism meant European imperialism, at least mm-hmm. in the ocean and all its politics, especially in the age of empire in the 19th century. You, when you talked about imperial powers, you talked about Britain, France, Holland, uh, and uh, imperialism with all its baggage, as you said, and all that it connotes at different in different temporalities was really a European issue. Uh, and uh, all the concepts that derived from that word and that you know idea were Western and European. But I was so surprised in the archive that... Um, a, that there were other imperial aspirations uh, floating around in the Western Indian Ocean, and that these other imperial ambitions were not necessarily Western or European. They were Arab, Asian, um, and they were interestingly entangling, borrowing, cannibalizing ideas from European imperial powers with whom they were rubbing shoulders in the ocean. 
and they were but at the same time they were invoking their own traditions and healing themselves very firmly in their domestic constituencies now what was actually very interesting was that i started thinking a of course i was very uh, you know intrigued because that really questioned some of the things that i you know a very western european indian ocean a british lake as it was called in the 19th century by the 19th century so i, I mean at one level it's i started it started questioning all those ideas that i had of the ocean and i got really excited but on the other hand i mean i was excited that there were there was competition within imperial powers and that this competition was not only uh, within european powers but it was between them and the arab asian imperial uh, you know powers also so that was something which you know i wanted to pause to think about it it was something new that i had discovered but secondly i think i was it was quite uh, Uh, you know, exciting, and I was very, really, actually, very excited that the reason why Europeans and Arab Asian imperialists or imperial powers were competing and borrowing from each other and whatever was because actually they were going for the same things in the ocean, or they had come to the. I mean, the ocean meant certain profits of trade. Um, and there was a shared kind of interest in those profits of trade and of course you know what i'm getting at slaves slave trade mm-hmm. uh, most of the european powers were making a beeline to the ocean for that um and uh, uh, the asian and the uh, arab uh, you know sultans and polities um were kind of equally interested uh, in the trade in monopolizing profits of trade so so the you know the the kind of rubbing shoulders of imperial powers the shared kind of interests um the borrowings the kind of invocations of um traditional domestic uh, you know reference of power and sovereignty and yet the entanglement and um the engagement with european uh, ideas um i think all of that was possible because the pro- the interests the economic commercial interests were the same now the languages in which these interests were being articulated were obviously not the same they were different um but at the bottom of this shared um you know space uh, and uh, kind of at times bonhomie at times antagonism at times entanglement at times distancing Uh, was uh, you know that everybody was going for the same things uh, so uh, so i think in that context um, it was uh, it is interesting that uh, uh, you know uh, arab asian imperialists um, also need to be introduced in the story of european imperial expansion of european imperialism in the indian ocean uh, because uh, a it makes them out not as unsuspecting victims and it makes the story of uh, the european hegemony and monopolization of the ocean especially the british you know kind of dominance of the ocean it kind of you know makes that narrative a little more complex and complicated so let's talk about kind of actually kind of what these places were like um i want to bring up Zanzibar first. Okay, kind of so what what exactly what was the was the place of Zanzibar like during the period you're writing about? Um I note that I think you quote Dr. Livingston who's quite rude about it or at least quite rude right. about the city. <laughs> yes. Um uh so so what actually is this was this part of the world like at that time? Yes, yeah, so um so I think uh, your uh i think that you know uh, it was really initially uh, a portuguese uh, kind of settlement and island and till all through the 16th century and i at least in whatever i records i saw uh, it was really around the 17th century 1690s uh, that uh, one of the omani uh, princes prince uh, i think saif ahmed if i'm not mistaken um, yeah saif bin sultan Uh, he uh, actually 
took a kind of campaign there and uh, he defeated the Portuguese and he set foothold on Zanzibar. So around 1698, 17th century, that's when, you know, the Omani uh, political foothold and presence uh, in Zanzibar begins to look very real and visible. Although I must add that um, prior to this, even when it was a Portuguese, uh, you know, kind of settlement, uh, the commercial and trading links, I think, were still intact, you know, between the eastern coast of uh, Africa and the Arabian, southeast corner of the Arabian Peninsula. But I think from the 17th century, I think you can um, see a kind of political investment, interest, uh, and a political, Omani political foothold uh, in Zanzibar. And I think that this interest, this political investment and interest only increased through the 18th and into the 19th century. And my understanding is that uh, one of the reasons why it increased is that, you know, uh, from the late 18th and early 19th century, as uh, the British uh, surveillance control uh, of the slave trade and uh, even before this kind of abolitionist rhetoric, you know, kind of intensified or became shrill in the middle of the 19th century, even in the early part of the century, like, uh, you know, before, like, say, before the treaty, first slave ban treaty was signed by uh, the Omanis and British in 1820, just before that, uh, this kind of British surveillance, control, interference uh, in the Western Indian Ocean, taking slave trade as the their point of entry, uh, that had really kind of become a nuisance for the Omani sultans. And I my sense is from the records that um, uh, they really wanted uh, to open up other kinds of ports and other kinds of, you know, geographical spaces where they could function, carry on with their trade and their profits and their you know, slave depots and all of that um, with relatively less British surveillance and relatively less generally European competition also, I think. And I think that's why through the 18th century and especially before the 1820-21 treaty with Britain about slave ban, which of course never really, I mean, did not really materialize into anything uh, effective on ground, um, you find that uh, Zanzibar becomes of great political interest, a, a place of political investment uh, for the Omanis uh, primarily, I think, because my understanding is that they are looking for kind of quote-unquote safe havens, you know, away from British surveillance and British interference and control. Um, I think so the Muscat trade, uh, they want to kind of, you know, lie low on and open up new uh, areas from where they can function. And I think that, uh, um, you know, from the 1820s, uh, when Sayed Saeed, who's one of the most important, mm -hmm. you know, patriarch of the of the Sultanate, um, he really begins to invest money also into Zanzibar. Uh, and because he really thinks that this is his kind of solution to the kind of ways he's being almost enveloped by Britain and other European powers. And um, he makes large investments in clove plantations, for instance. He's the one who actually starts this clove plantation business in, um, in Zanzibar. Um, and he's the one uh, who is very encouraging of... Uh, Indian merchants and encourage and wants Indian merchants and bankers to invest uh, in land and in clove plantations. In fact, Indian merchants and bankers are actually his main investors. They are rolling money uh, into uh, you know the economy uh, of Zanzibar. Um, and uh, by eighteen fifties, I saw a kind of you know uh, a kind of. Uh, uh, an estimate of the income, uh, annual income that is being generated under Sayyid Saeed's regime and his interest, both political and commercial, economic. And uh, I was actually really surprised that 
the annual income of zanzibar in 18 by 1850 exceeded $100,000 you know and this was like a huge uh, jump from uh, pre 1820s uh, you know days in zanzibar when uh, you know before the omanis and sayed 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 said in particular uh, had not really focused on it as an alternate site uh, for his political and his commercial entrepreneurship um, so slaves ivory cloves uh, bankrolled almost by indian capital indian bankers merchants mm. um, and um, you know really became a new kind, I would say, a new kind of political economy of Zanzibar under Omani ages almost. Um, and uh, I was actually so uh, enthused and thrilled because um, in, under the cover of this, you know, more commercial economic investments that Sayed Said was making in Zanzibar, which were bearing fruits, as I said, you know, because the annual incomes were jumping from their earlier records. Um, you also, I mean, this was also a way to tease the British, you know, it was also a way to kind of, um, you know, pull the rug from under their feet in the sense that most of the English merchants, bankers who he was attracting and who were his major financiers were British Indian subjects. A lot of them, you know, they were, they were British Indian subjects. It is true that a lot of them were from the independent Western Indian state of Kutch in modern Gujarat uh, today, but uh, and they were independent and they they were kind of under their own Rao of Kutch, their own ruler. Um, nonetheless, uh, we should not forget uh, the kind of agency that uh, you know these kind of conflictual and contesting gray zones of whose subjects you are, you know, <laughs> offers uh, to individuals. Um, and Kachi merchants and generally merchants from the western coast of India who were very much active and involved, both Hindus and Muslims, by the way, Khojas um, and Hindu Kachi merchants from the western coast of India, um, sometimes, you know, got their way through as British Indian subjects when it suited them, when it did not suit them. They said, we are not British Indian subjects. We are the subjects of the Rao of Kutch and so on and so forth. So they played, they played with this, you know, this interesting uh, moment uh, in, in Omani history with Zanzibar opening up, or, or, you know, with, with their help. Um, so I think that... Um, Zanzibar, uh, quite contrary to the root comments of <laughs> Livingston, uh, in the 19th century, seemed to me in the 19, early 19th century records, in especially Sayyid uh, Said's period, uh, as uh, an extremely vivacious, thriving, bustling port town um, in which, uh, you know, uh, very uh, good careers could be made. Um, and uh, these careers that were made uh, were across ethnic, you know, uh, groups. Of course, uh, even now, if you go to Zanzibar, uh, some of the most, I don't know if you've been there, but well, you should, <laughs> some of the most striking uh, architectural buildings along the coast are um, made, are merchant houses, and they are made by Indian Kachi merchants or uh, merchants from Gujarat um, and uh, they were some of the wealthiest people um, and um, uh, but apart from that I think that uh, some of the important Swahili uh, slavers and merchants also benefited from this you know very politically motivated boom time that Sayyid Said inaugurated uh, in uh, uh, in Zanzibar um, and so contrary to Livingston as I said it was a place of opportunities for across ethnic groups, for Swahilis, for Indians, for Arab merchants and slavers, um, and interestingly, also for British private merchants uh, and, and British private merchant companies. And I think I have some examples um, in the book um, where, you know, um, I, I give examples of how 
you know, many of uh, the British private interests in trade uh, were tying up with Kachi, with, with uh, Arab uh, interests and uh, things like, you know, sugarcane pressing machines and stuff were being introduced via those collaborations. So, yeah, I mean, so Livingstone might say rude things, but I think there was a reason, there was a different reason why he was saying rude things. But uh, in terms of actual political and commercial visibility, it was boom time to answer your question <laughs> more specifically. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's let's maybe pivot to talk about and, and there, there there was lots of stuff there that I that, that I that I would like to get into. But let's I like to pivot to talk about um, domestic politics, which uh, could also be a euphemism, I guess, for royal politics. Um you know, I think they because they the the Sultanate gets split in two. You have the you have Zanzibar, um, and you have uh then then Muscat in, in Oman. So the Sultanate gets gets split in two between the two brothers. Um, I'm also struck was that there was the story of um I believe you right it was a it was a daughter in the Zanzibar court who escapes and runs away to marry some European merchant in some. Which is very embarrassing, I think, for everyone involved. Um, but but how do, I guess how does the Omani kind of Sultan, like I guess the the royal court um, and those politics, kind of influence the the development of this of the Sultanate? Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, thank you. So yeah, I mean, uh, I think one of the um, ways in which um, you had a question somewhere. Uh, that, you know, how did Sayyid Sayyid manage his empire or how did he go about it? And so I think what I'm saying might cover that, which is that one of the, one of the ways in which uh, I think um, notions of sovereignty and uh, running a sultanate, uh, the Omani style, um, def, uh, you know, differed uh, from, um, I think, some of the its peer and contemporary European um, you know, ways of handling things was that the family and the household um, remained central to politics. And uh, even when I do my Indian history bits, I feel that sometimes that um, uh, quite contrary to the stereotypes that we have between the West and the rest about the position of women and household and family and all of that. Uh, as far as history tells us, uh, in terms of political culture, politics, the divide between the private and the public uh, in non-European polities is far blurred um, than uh, it seems to me the case, you know, with uh, the Western uh, polities. Um, so having said that, um, one of the other things which struck me as a South Asianist working on uh, getting excited about the Omani Sultanate was that um, although it seemed from the, uh, I mean, when I started researching on it, uh, it was Sayyid Saeed, you know, who kind of excited, interested me. And he was like this big patriarch and, and everything was happening under his AGs and all of that. But uh, when I probed more, it seemed that, yes, he was the big overarching patriarch, patriarch but um, it was the family and the household uh, which was central to his politics. Um, so, so, so this runaway uh, princess uh, who marries this German merchant and then settles somewhere um, uh, in Germany, um, I don't think it's an aberration. Although, you know, because her memoirs got written and they got translated into English and European languages, um, I think she is very popular and she kind of sticks out as a kind of aberration in this otherwise very patriarchal, you know, setting um, and all of that. But if you look at Sayyid Saeed's politics, uh, Sayyid Saeed himself had several wives and many concubines. And what uh, and they were from different parts of the world, almost different parts of the Indian Ocean. They were from Ethiopia, Abyssinia. There was one from Malabar um, and, uh, you know, uh, all kinds of Central Asian places, Georgia. Um, and uh, it's interesting that the different princes and sons uh, of Sayyid Saeed was, were uh, offsprings of different ladies in his court, um, in his household. 
Um, and it seems when I was researching them uh, that um, uh, this harem uh, politics was very interesting in uh, or very uh, influential um, in determining the careers and fates of these princes. So they would jostle and lobby for support of their respective sons uh, for, uh, you know, good postings as governors of Zanzibar or wherever. Um, and uh, uh, the princes themselves, their training to be sultans or then to take on these, you know, roles, um, in that training, the women also played a very important role. Um, further, I think that I found some interesting information. And when I went to Zanzibar, I saw some of some of the architectural material remnants of that, which is that um, and this kind of interest that Sayyid Said had in Bandar Abbas on the Persian side of the you know Persian Gulf um, and Kishim and these ports and islands for his you know for carrying on, I believe a kind of commercial and trading, uh, you know, uh, experiment with relatively less surveillance. Um, for that also, you know, he was entering into matrimonial alliances with Persian princesses. Uh, one of them uh, was, was very important and she came back with him to Zanzibar. And uh, in Zanzibar, I saw a Persian bath that she he had built for her. And I, that, that was like, you know, I was very excited to see that because it, it was unexpected. You know, I was just driving past some uh, very beautiful clove plantations. And suddenly I saw, uh, you know, these kind of very uh, Indo-Persian kind of domes sticking out uh, from behind the clove trees. And... Um, since I'm trained as a South Asianist, of course, that kind of architecture, you know, kind of attracts my eye. And I said, oh, God, what is this in Zanzibar? And I asked uh, my driver to take a detour. And he just was dismissing it. And he said, oh, there's nothing. I'm taking you to the palace, you know, and whatever. I said, no, please, I just want to have a look. And there was this Persian bath. And there was a Persian, in Persian, there was a little, you know, a kind of detail there. And which said uh, what I had read in some of the records that uh, Sayyid Said had built this uh, Persian bath for his Persian princess, his wife, um, her queen. Uh, so anyway, so what I was saying is that um, this, uh, the queens, the princess, the women, the household, the family was extremely integral to his politics. Um, and uh, there were very interesting details about uh, what the marriage with this princess, Persian princess, meant to his control over slave traffic from that part of the Persian Gulf and, you know, all of that. So so basically the, the kind of contestations that, for instance, he was having with the British about surveillance control, slave trade, slave traffic, uh, postings of his sons for various, you know, like political reasons to different parts of his sultanate. Uh, to a large extent, women were calling the shots from behind um, and they were playing a very critical role. They, they, I mean, the private and the public or political was pretty much fused, you know, in the Omani Sultanate. Um, and uh, of course, as we all know, as social scientists, that that gave a lot of agency to women. Uh, in the Sultanate. Um, and uh, uh, these large extended families. Uh, I mean, it's interesting that uh, I'm forgetting the name of this princess, but who ran away, who you mentioned, but uh, she was the sister of Sayyid Majid, you know, one of the Sultan's son. And if I remember correctly, um, she fell in love with this German merchant uh, because she was living. Uh, in Zanzibar with her brother, uh, you know, Majid. Uh, and she was not in Muscat. Um, and uh, I mean, if you think of, if you read her memoir and all, I mean, yes, it was a kind of scandal um, in the town. But in terms of actual uh, action being taken by Majid, you must have noticed that there wasn't that much, you know. 
I mean, after all, he was the Sultan. He could have dragged her back. He could have done all kinds of things. But it was interesting that it was not such a kind of yeah. violent response. It just seems um, more. And I think kind that's of... because it's a it's part of a long history of women calling the shots in the mm-hmm. Sultanate. I yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it seems it's a lot more kind of like just aggrieved and embarrassed as opposed to yes, um, yes. So yes, I'm trying to think of like sorry, mm, yeah. No, no, no. Go ahead. No, I was just saying that also because I now remember now that you mentioned I remember reading her memoir and I also remember going to that palace where she lived uh, in Zanzibar and there are all her pictures and her various room and all of that is there. And um, uh, the embarrassment is also because I think, at least from the memoir, it appears that a lot of uh, relatives are coming from Muscat, you know, and saying, oh, God, what has happened? How did you allow this to happen? You know, so the embarrassment is all uh, about, you know, within the family from relatives coming from Oman and saying all of that. But within Zanzibar, I think it was a, relatively more cosmopolitan society where I don't think we did so much of a stir. The stir was more from Muscat uh, side. Yeah. Um, so I I do have to ask this question because the 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 topic of slavery has come up a couple times now, um, which does lead to this very, I think, kind of, it, it's like an uneasy tension, I would say, which is, it seems like the strongest example of how the Omani Sultanate could kind of preserve their autonomy and the place that they were most um aggressive in trying to preserve their autonomy uh is regarding the slave trade um, and 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 preserving the slave trade especially as um, the empire becomes much more abolitionist um you know how do we then and you know obviously this this has echoes of what we talk about today which is kind of the balance between national sovereignty and anti-imperialism with the concept of universal human rights. That's not to say the British at the time were concerned about that. Um, but but there are, but there are, but there are kind of, it does feel like there, there are echoes. Um, how do you kind of see the Omani Sultanate? Well, first of all, like how how did the Omani Sultanate, just, just from the facts, how did they try to preserve their autonomy when it came to the slave trade? And then how does that kind of fit with the way we understand these these all of these concepts today? Yeah, right. Great, great question. Well, let me say uh, mm. that, and I think I make this, you want to add something? To... No, 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 please go ahead. Okay. Well, I think that, uh, as I say in, this, in the book, that, um, well, despite all the anti-slave trade rhetoric and the, even the abolition discourse, uh, abolitionist discourse in the late 19th century, um, I mean, I think that there was a shared interest in profits from this mm-hmm. continuing to flow, unfortunately, yeah. from both sides, right? Right, 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 and right. And I, I mean, this is my understanding from the records. And uh, there were friendships, there was bonhomie, there was kind of tie-ups at the local level. And there was lip service, I think, both from the side of the sultans as well as from the abolitionists. I mean, a lot of abolitionists, as you know, were slavers themselves and they had so much of, you know, so much at stake. Um, Having said that, still, I think my take would be that the sultans were as much into political rhetoric as the British were and in this period. And... um, and I think that's why they both got along really well and both continued to profit from this horrible trade. Um, so the question is that what was the re- what is the difference in the political rhetoric, you know, of the British and the Sultans? And my sense is uh, that um, slave trade was, well, I wouldn't say justified or some, although I do use that word off and on in the book, but I think it was explained, let's say, like that, put it like that, by the sultans um, as being different from the trade against which the British were, you know, kind of raising their pitch. Um, and continuously from Syed Saeed down to Barghash, who's, by the way, my favorite sultan, <laughs> the, the, from, from Syed Saeed to Barghash, um, there is an attempt at every level, 
whether it is at the level of negotiations for slave treaties, whether it is emissaries being sent to London by the sultans to argue their cases. Um, at every level, there is a kind of, uh, you know, through the 19th century, an attempt to say that you don't understand what this is in our context. It's, it's that's the message that you, you've got it wrong. You don't understand what it is. It's not what you think it is, right? And what it is, I mean, I am quoting that Sayyid Sayyid says, for us, it's an ancient institution, quote unquote. You know, he calls it an ancient institution. Um, and um, he says that for us, um, you know, again, invoking the idea of family, uh, for us, he's a member of our family. He's integral to our, the slave is integral to our family. Uh, and uh, uh, of course, Bargash art articulates it much, you know, in much uh, cleaner and neater ways than others when he says that, you know, um, I'm a father figure um, and uh, my sovereignty uh, very much in a way like the 19th century Queen Victoria kind of sovereignty, you know, mother figure. So he invokes that father figure uh, idea. So that's why I say that they borrow a lot, you know, from their contemporary European models of how sovereignty is being articulated. So Bargash says, I'm, I'm the father figure. Um, and uh, a father is a protector of everyone, including slaves. Uh, so, you know, the, my kingdom is my family and slaves are part of the family. And so uh, I am their protector. And so this is, this is our our understanding of a slave and slaves and their and their relationship to you know our quality um and therefore uh, you've got it wrong and so it's not as obnoxious and exploitative as you think it is um and uh, uh, so of course the, this this is their their political rhetoric and um i'm not saying that uh, this political rhetoric rhetoric is accepted, but what I'm saying is that it jostles with the British rhetoric on slaves, um, with with very little actual, you know, uh, efforts to stop uh, this trade uh, for the variety of reasons that I've just mentioned, um, and uh, so despite uh, negotiations, treaties, meetings emissaries back and forth um it never really stops as we all know you know um and um, it's um, i mean i think that uh, there is a kind of uh, turning a blind eye uh, even when you have agreed uh, according to treat according to the terms of treaties like the treaty of 1851 1842 51 uh, that, you know, uh, you will not export slaves. Um, there is a way out in which that then begins to justify the sultan's use of slaves in their own estates, you know, in their own plantations. That, okay, we will not export, but we will, that you don't say, but, you know, because our relationship with slaves is a very family relationship, we will continue to use them in our plantations. In fact, that links to the question you asked about Zanzibar's economy. And I think one of the reasons why the Zanzibar economy really flourishes in this period of high political rhetoric about slave trade is because several treaties have been signed by the middle of the 19th century, the terms of which are that the sultans will stop the export of trade from their ports. But they say nothing about the internal movement of slaves and use of slaves within the territories of the sultan. sultan. So, uh, obviously, a lot of labor is available now to be used on clove and date plantations in Oman. And so that really benefits its economy hugely. Um, yeah, so I think that this is uh, the way uh, they handle it. This is the way everyone profits from it, unfortunately. And that's why I think it just goes on, uh, despite the surface noise. So, so that was going to be my last question, but actually you mentioned something in your answer that I, that, that I just have to follow up on. You called Sultan Bargash your, your favorite sultan. Why, why yes. is that? Uh, yes. <laughs> well, um, for a variety of reasons, um, 
one of which is, of course, that um, he is the one uh, who heals himself most deeply into local Omani political and cultural traditions. And, uh, uh, and while doing that, he is the one who is... Uh, who makes the most effort to get global visibility for himself. So this is one of the interesting, um, you know, case in point, um, where uh, uh, an Omani sultan wants a global presence uh, with other European imperial powers. So he wants to be on the table when the slave ratification treaty is being signed in London, in 1890s, I think, he, he wants to be a part of that discussion. And he does go to London, you know, and he's, there are beautiful pictures with some of which I have used in my book of his visit uh, to uh, London to meet Queen Victoria, to meet other kinds of, you know, elites, uh, and uh, goes to Birmingham and London, and then he takes, he's obviously traveling by ship and he stops in Paris and he, this is his nice kind of European tour you know, for, but, but his the main purpose of his visit is, you know, to uh, kind of take part in the deliberation, deliberations of the trade ratification treaty. Um, and uh, um, then uh, it's interesting that uh, he makes, uh, he has been to Bombay where he has been very friendly with the governor of Bombay, Elphinstone, um, and he is uh, so influenced, um, uh, you know, by uh, the redrawing of Bombay in the late 19th century, um, uh, you know, uh, in terms of redrawing the city and its layout because cholera is kind of ravaging the Western Indian Ocean port cities, including Bombay, that when he comes back, he's so influenced uh, by this British colonial city that he begins to remodel, um, you know, parts of Zanzibar uh, on, you know, Bombay's lines. So he lays out electrical lines, canals, irrigation things. And so, I mean, it's very clear that he's really influenced by this Bombay connection. I mean, Majid also is, Sayed Majid also is. And um, as I say in the book, that, of course, I was very surprised to find this lovely file in the in the Zanzibar archives where, uh, you know, Dar es Salaam was completely uh, a, a city completely modeled on Bombay uh, because of Sayyid Majid's trips to Bombay on the invitation of the governor of Bombay, El Finston. Um, so, uh, so, uh, but, but you know, so Majid was also doing it, but I would say Bargash took this thing to its peak, you know, of borrowing. Um, cannibalizing, using, um, and uh, you know, not just domesticating uh, things that he liked in terms of architectural designs or in terms of uh, you know infrastructural things like uh, canals and electricity and all of that, um, but uh, in term you know kind of using that as bargain counters to bargain for certain concessions, uh, to, you know, uh, find a place for himself um, on, the, on the table, rubbing shoulders with other, you know, like British and other imperial powers, deliberating issues of tra slave trade, slavery, uh, and uh, even Wahhabi threats, you know, meetings on that. He kind of, as I say, somewhere he kind of squeezes himself, you know, on this global chessboard, uh, where which which we thought so far, and which seemed, uh, as far as nineteenth-century imperial politics is concerned, to be really a white man's club, right? So he is uh, he manages to squeeze himself into those drawing boards. Um, and uh, and yet remains very uh, you know uh, entrenched in ibadi faith, which is the Muslim sectarian faith of you know these this dynasty, uh, very much uh, uh, embedded in uh, Islamic law. The kind of courts he establishes are all run on you know, Islamic uh, legal principle regimes, 
and yet you know he wants to rub shoulders with queen victoria and her <laughs> entourage um, and uh, get himself photographed and clicked and you know be part of that imperial world uh, and have a place in that global world which has very few of these characters in the 19th century so that's why i just find his politics extremely ingenious um, and interesting well i think that's a great place to end our conversation with Seema Alavi, author of Sovereigns of the Sea, Omani Ambition in the Age of Empire. Seema, I actually have two final questions for you, which are, uh, where can people find your work? Not just this book, but all of your work. And uh, what's next for you? What do you think the next project might be? Uh, thank you so much, Nicholas. So, um, well, this book... Um... I was told by Penguin India should be available uh, abroad, uh, which means out of Indi outside India, uh, by the end of this month. So, um, you know, in a in a paperback version, uh, so which would be cheaper and easier to read and <laughs> carry. So, uh, end of September, it's being exp paperback copies would be available globally. Um, but for my other works, well. As I mean, I hate to say it, but the good old Amazon <laughs> dot in or dot UK or wherever people are is the best. I think it has all my books. Uh, I have often checked it. Um, and um, as far as what next? Yes, that's a good question. I've been um, very. I've been interested for a very long time in the histories of food, and now with my foray into the Indian Ocean. I would be interested in, you know, teasing out the history of food across the ocean as it kind of, you know, moved as ingredients moved across the ocean. What happened to recipes and cookbooks and, you know, cooks and did they also move and stuff like that. So, you know, it's still very kind of half-baked and I'm still thinking about it. But yes, um, food histories across the Indian Ocean um, especially the Western Indian Ocean, because that makes me, you know, keep my kind of heels dug in Western coast of India. Um, it seems to be interesting me increasingly. So let's see how far we go with that. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network at newbooksnetwork.com. We are on all your favorite podcasts, apps, uh, all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Uh, stay tuned for more news and who's coming up on the show next week. But before then, Seema, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure and really enjoyed this conversation. I hope your audience enjoys it as well. Thank you so much, Nicholas.